Hi, and welcome to It's Complicated, a podcast about healthcare ethics and practice presented by the Nova Scotia Health Ethics Network, or NSHEN. I'm Marika Warren, network ethicist for NSHEN, and I'll be your host for this discussion. This podcast is now entering its second year and its second season, and we hope that you're finding these conversations useful, and we welcome suggestions for future topics and guests. Speaking of guests, today I'm joined by Dr. Mona Gupta, who is a psychiatrist at the Université de Montréal and the chair of the Canadian government's expert panel on maid and mental illness. Recognizing that the topic is controversial, I wanted to be clear at the outset that this conversation is meant to map out the terrain in terms of the ethical questions and concerns that the expert panel encountered in its work, rather than making particular arguments either for or against medical assistance in dying when mental disorder is the sole underlying medical condition. Um, so we're going to be looking at that rather than making a particular argument either for or against made in those uh, circumstances. So I'm wondering perhaps to start us off, Mona, and recognizing that it's an involved question, if you could briefly give us some background as to why we're engaging with these questions about made and mental disorder in Canada and what the expert panel was asked to do. Yeah, thanks a lot, Marika. Thanks so much for the invitation to talk with you about this topic today. And actually, this is an excellent question. There are two answers to why we're engaging with this topic today. So the one answer is that the Canadian government made a decision uh, back in 2016 when its legislation was uh, adopted to single out a category of requesters called mental illness as a sole underlying medical condition and to say, you know, we need to think about this group in greater depth. And so it commissioned a working group to do that and so on through the Council of Canadian Academies. But, you know, what's interesting about that move is that it it took a, a subgroup of people with a particular kind of medical problem and said, we're going to give separate reflection to them. And so I think the, the, the answer to your question is that the reason why we're having this conversation today goes back to that original decision. Now, you might say to me, oh, well, but didn't they also, you know, select other groups out for special study? And you're right about that. That was mature minors. That was the idea of uh, making an advanced request for MAID. But those two groups are not diagnostic groups. Those two groups would be exceptions or changes to the existing eligibility criteria. So for example, you have to be 18 in order to make a request. The question was, well, do you have to be 18 in every case? Maybe we need to give some thought to that. Uh, You must consent to MAID immediately before it is administered. Well, are there situations where you could give advanced consent? Um, And even if you're not able to do so at the exact moment. So that what would those circumstances be? And so that's a direct questioning of the criterion. Whereas the mental disorders as a sole underlying medical condition, special topic for reflection, if you will, is about diagnosis. So built into singling out that group is the notion that we're not sure if this condition can qualify as a grievous and irremediable medical condition, which is the eligibility requirement in the law. So we're going to spend extra time thinking about that. So it immediately separated out that group of people. And so, as I mentioned, there was a special committee that uh, studied that question, as well as these other two. And then, as you know, and perhaps we'll talk about this a bit more, Canada's law changed again in response to the Quebec Superior Court decision in Trichon and Gladue. And in that piece of legislation, an exclusion clause was introduced for persons 
um, using the language of legislation with mental illness as a sole underlying medical condition that is set to expire in March of 2023. So because the expiry is coming, there is a lot of discussion now about you know, what's going to happen in March, what is the healthcare system going to do, how are assessors going to handle these requests. So that was a long answer. Uh, I hope that was that that gets to the heart of what you're asking. I think it's also important to remember that among those countries that allow uh, assisted dying outside of an end of life context, none of them single out persons with mental disorders as a distinct group, neither in their laws nor in their um, structures of safeguards. There are certainly clinical distinctions that practitioners. Uh, use and uh, different uh, ways of thinking about the assessment process, but that's all something that has evolved through professional associations. There's no distinction in law. So given that background in terms of sort of the legislation and the various court cases, how did we then come to the work of the expert panel itself, which was different from the previous uh, group, correct? That is correct. The first group was asked to provide a study of the topic. So what is known about this topic, but not to make recommendations. But in uh, Bill C-7, which introduced this uh, exclusion clause for persons with mental illness, the bill also said, look, in these two years where people with mental illness are excluded, we're going to ask, we're going to put together an expert panel whose job is now to make recommendations about protocols, uh, guidance, and safeguards that, as needed, that would be appropriate to structure the practice of made for this group of people. But again, you know, just to come back to my first point, interesting that built into the mandate is the assumption that an entirely parallel set of safeguards, protocol, and guidance might be necessary for this group of people with these diagnoses compared to all of the rest of essentially society or or people with other medical conditions. So these assumptions were built into the mandate and certainly uh, informed our our thinking uh, uh, about the work. So in terms of that work that you were doing, again, sort of recognizing that it was it was not about, you know, yes or no. It was about how do we do this well? Um, what were some of the specifically ethical questions that the expert panel addressed sort of in broad strokes or sort of the broad concerns you know, around ethics that came up in that work? Yeah, that's um, I, I would say that there are two two parts to that answer. So the first part concerns the role of ethical values in deliberation about made about whether we should offer MAID as a society, uh, whether we should offer MAID to specific individuals who ask for it. And the second part is ethical issues that are relevant to specific considerations in doing a MAID request. So I'm going to tackle the first part first. So the first issue is that there is I don't want to use the word controversy because in my mind it, it, it isn't a controversy, but there seems to be confusion about the role of ethical deliberation in public debate, in policy debate, certainly in the debate about MAID. And I would say in any question that concerns clinical decision-making or medical decision-making, I'm going to say the word medical here because I'm a physician, but I recognize that made assessments can be done by physicians and nurse practitioners. And it seems that there is a belief that a decision about whether to offer MAID 
as a society, or allow it, make it legally permissible, is something that can be established on the basis of scientific data alone. And that there is no place, and there ought not to be any place for ethical deliberation. And the discussion about mental disorders has uh, been an interesting example for those who uh, advance that position, because they will say, look, we don't have a lot of data about prognosis for certain kinds of mental disorders, and therefore we can't make a decision. And anyone who says these are values questions is wrongheaded. They're introducing values where they don't belong. This is a question that should be guided by science. So that's, that is a view. And one of the things the panel did was to say, well, you know, that view doesn't stand up, right? We had, we know lots about the prognosis of certain types of cancers, for example, down to the detail of the likelihood that this person will survive three months, six months, 12 months, etc. That didn't change the fact that there was a massive social, ethical debate about whether assisted dying is something that should be permitted. So there, there seems to be a sort of conflation of scientific deliberation and ethical deliberation and sort of a zero-sum thing that if you have lots of scientific knowledge, you don't need any ethical values, um, as opposed to recognizing that each of these types of deliberation are complementary, influence each other, and are part of any policy debate, the debate about MAID, and in fact, um, you know, kind of all decision-making, really. That's the big picture way in which we thought about the role of ethics in the MAID debate, and specifically in the debate about MAID for mental disorders, that, that values are playing a role here somewhere, and how can we surface those and make them explicit, make it explicit where values are relevant to this policy question. There were also some specific examples that we talked about uh, that concern the application of made to, to a, a specific requester, for example. So uh, one, I think, really pertinent example that's, you know, that continues to be part of this ongoing debate in Canada is the question of the incurability of mental disorders. So um, how much do we need to know about what's going to happen in the future and what's happened in the past in order to say, well, this person is entitled to access made? Now, I think that probably most people would agree that we don't need to have 100% certainty because there's loads of people that are making requests for made right now. And most Canadians are accepting of that, where there isn't 100% certainty about what's going to happen in the future. So then the question is, how much do we need to know? Do we need to be 90% sure? Do we need to be 50% sure? Can we be 25% sure? You know, and where you place that line of knowledge about the person's condition and their past treatment and so on, that cannot be purely based on data uh, because uh, different people are going to place that line differently and they're going to do so partly on the basis of ethical considerations. Um, and obviously, the, 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 well, the most obvious place where ethical considerations play a role is what are the individual requester's values? Because, yes, a physician or nurse practitioner is being, being asked to do something, and they are entitled to make a values-based decision about whether they will participate or not. But the individual themselves is requesting something that corresponds with their own values. So, so where we place the line 
cannot be void of ethical considerations. So that's a kind of one clinical example of where ethics plays a role. I can give you a few more if you wish. The point is that we saw ethics as being relevant at both of these levels. And so thinking about the process of recognizing, again, that part of the important work, as you say, is is really surfacing and interrogating the values and sort of making sure that the values that, you know, wind up being embedded in our practice or policy are, are the quote unquote right ones or are the, you know, the ones that align with the way that we value things in other domains of healthcare or even uh, our daily lives. So in terms of thinking about the process, how did you approach the work of the expert panel with an eye to making sure that the process was likely to bring those values to the fore? Well, I think like many of these process questions, a lot of that was done upstream in the sense that it was done in the creation and the composition of the panel. So I think that um, the government departments involved spent quite a bit of time thinking about the composition of the panel, all the kinds of usual demographic variables to ensure that there was a true diversity of views on that panel, including people that were opposed really to the practice, were on record as having said, you know, I don't think that we should be doing this, um, knowing and, and knowing that, that that view needed to be taken into consideration in order to formulate useful uh, recommendations that would respond to people's concerns. So, you know, there was a um, professional expertise, there was lived expertise based on lived experience, Uh, there was uh, gender balance, regional balance, and uh, diverse positions about the question. So I I think that did a lot of that process work, um, because there were certainly a wide range of views on the panel. And I think actually, the fact that we were able to land on a set of recommendations that I would say are interdependent, and that we were able to agree to that, I think tells me that that upstream process work was well done, because it brought together complementary perspectives that nevertheless could be reconciled. I'm sure that every member of the panel finds there's aspects of the report and of the recommendations that, you know, if they were the only author, they might have written it a little bit differently. But in the end, we were able to agree on what we put together. So getting to a place sort of where everyone can live with it at the end of the day, which often when you know, going into any sort of ethics process, we often say that's that's the goal that uh, we're looking for. You know, certainly not. We don't want unanimity because then often that indicates that we've missed something. Um, but also to be able to you know, take everything into consideration and find a way forward, which is also a necessity in the you know in the practical sense, whether that's a clinical care decision or a broader policy decision and approach that uh, the expert panel was really working with. So I'm curious in terms of those discussions, and again, knowing that you can't get into the details, but often in ethics, we talk about, you know, what are the ethically relevant differences? And I think this gets back to some of the, the questions around, you know, why single out this particular diagnostic group? So in those discussion, were there you know, ethically relevant differences that were identified in individuals for whom mental disorder was their sole underlying medical condition, or were there sort of more points of you know, similarity, you know, for example, with the sort of the paradigmatic cancer patient, who is you know, where we really started with the discussion about MAID in Canada? Yeah. So um, we talked a lot about that paradigmatic cancer patient in 2016, 
We didn't talk a lot about the paradigmatic track two patient in 2021. And I think there's been almost a, a, a hole, if you will, in the thinking about eligibility and assessments of eligibility when it comes to track two, because in the conversation about mental disorders, we keep going back to the paradigmatic cancer patient of 2016. But in fact, there's a whole new group of people that are making requests under track two. And for the benefit of our conversation, people whose natural deaths are not reasonably foreseeable. And I think the starting point for our deliberations could not be Do people with mental disorders have lots in common or not lots in common with the paradigmatic cancer patient? Because they were never going to be compared to the paradigmatic cancer patient because by and large, these are folks whose natural deaths are not reasonably foreseeable. The question is, do they have things in common or not with the paradigmatic track two patient whose natural death is not reasonably foreseeable? And I think you've hit the nail on the head with this question, Marika, because What we found, and this was the central argument, if you will, of behind the panel's recommendations, is that there is nothing about all and only people with mental disorders that is relevantly different. There are people whose natural deaths are not reasonably foreseeable that have things in common in terms of the uncertainty, particularly in terms of the uncertainty of the evolution of their condition. And in that respect, some people with mental disorders and some of these other people, I'm just by shorthand, I'm just going to call them challenging track two cases. There are mostly relevant similarities there. So, so, so the, the short answer to your question is no. Um, is yes and no. Yes, there are relevant differences between people with mental disorders and the paradigmatic cancer patient, but that's irrelevant. There are not relevant differences between people with mental disorders and a subgroup of those who are currently able to request made right now under track two and are being found eligible. So that actually takes us to a really practical part of our reflection, which is if these two groups have more in common than different? Do we actually need a whole parallel set of structures to to structure made practice for this group of people? Or are there aspects of this track two structure which will be sufficient for people with mental disorders? And we actually also ask the opposite question. If there are things that are not sufficient for people with mental disorders, well, doesn't that mean they're insufficient for certain track two requesters as well? And in our report, we actually do this. We say, you know, we realize our mandate was mental disorders, and we intentionally use the term mental disorders, not mental illness. We we recognize that's our mandate, but in fact, the things that people are concerned about don't only apply to people with mental disorders. And maybe we should have thought about some of these things in this last year when track two opened up, because some of these things apply to track two as well. Um, So that's what I mean when I say I think there was a hole in our thinking. It's like we could never let go of the paradigmatic cancer patient in order to think about 
What are these track two requesters like? Now, in fairness, there haven't been a lot of track two requests since it's fairly new. But certainly one of the things the panel did is went out and got some feedback from people that are doing assessments under track two and said, you know, what are the challenges that you're facing? And lo and behold, the challenges they're facing are exactly the same kinds of challenges that have been identified about persons with mental disorders. And I want to say one last thing on that point. And I, you know, where does this come from? I don't know. We can speculate. But we obviously have a healthcare system. Medicine is system-based, right? And we have a healthcare system that's very much organized along those lines. You have heart doctors and stomach doctors and brain doctors and so on. And 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 you have mental disorder doctors, psychiatrists. And it's almost as though in the public imagination, it's really, really hard to believe or conceive, rather, that someone can have more than one condition at a time. So you either have a physical disorder or you have a mental disorder, and they're so completely different. But in fact, when we went out and got feedback from people in track two, what we heard was that a lot of these folks have psychiatric comorbidity which means they have both a mental disorder and a physical disorder at the same time. So how is this person who currently under our legislative framework is entirely able to make a request for me? How is this person really, really different from the person who is making the request based on that psychiatric disorder, but doesn't have the coexisting physical disorder? Particularly when the patient tells you very clearly the reason they're asking is for that mental disorder. So again, come back to that hole in our thinking, right? It's as though track two opened up and we didn't think, oh, wow, yeah, some of these folks are going to have mental disorders as well. In fact, plenty of people in track one, statistically speaking, had mental disorders as well. That, that's where a lot of our reasoning took us is sort of saying, like, who are these folks? And, you know, what diagnosis do they have? And what structures do we have in place for them? And are these structures working? And if they're not, what do we need to put in place? And that was the genesis of a lot of our recommendations. And I think that piece around, again, seeing to a certain degree all made patients as similar in certain important ways, again, from a values place and trying to treat them all similarly is an important, I think, uh, takeaway from the uh, the report of the expert panel. And I think that you know encourages us to think even about that, as you say, paradigmatic cancer patient from 2016, perhaps differently and in a more sort of fulsome and robust way that we really appreciate, again, all the things that matter to our health and well-being and all the things that might not be going well for us in ways that might make you know, a request for MAID something that uh, a patient wants to explore. Marika, if I could just say comment on that last point you made, you're, you're absolutely right. And that the kinds of concerns that people raise about requesters with a mental disorder, many of these concerns, suicidality is a great example, applies across the tracks. We as healthcare providers should be just as worried about suicidality in somebody who is nearing the end of life as we should in somebody with a mental disorder, regardless of what their diagnosis is. We know that suicidality is not determined only by diagnosis. And so one of the good things about focusing on people with mental disorders has has been exactly what you just said. It's allowed us to think a little bit more about all of this complexity across MATE and across the different groups of requesters and to get out of this pigeonholing of people by diagnosis, um, but rather think about, you know, what is what drives MADE requests and what are the things we need to be sensitive to in those assessments? Absolutely. Well, we're 
there's so many more things I would love to be able to uh, discuss, but we're coming to uh, the end of the time we have today. So I'm wondering if to bring the discussion to a close, you know, based on your work with the expert panel, as well as your own experience as a uh, psychiatrist, what makes it complicated as we move toward March 17th, 2023, and the removal of the legal restriction around providing MAID when mental disorder is the sole underlying medical condition? I, I'm so happy that you've asked that question, and actually it takes us right back to where we started. I think the most complicated thing is getting people out of the pigeonhole, is getting people out of the idea that somehow there is a bright line around all people with mental disorders that requires a whole separate kind of reasoning, a whole separate suite of safeguards and ways of approaching what we're doing. Instead, we need to be focusing on what are the things that we can learn about our concerns about mental disorder that we ought to be doing to improve made practice generally. But Marika, it is very, very difficult to do that. We as a society, I think, and you know, it just comes up again and again, the fact that we're having this podcast, I think is an example of it. We, we, we want to believe, we're invested in this idea that people with mental disorders are an entirely separate group of people, that mental disorders are an entirely different beast, that their abilities to make decisions for themselves that are consistent with their own values and their own vision of quality of life is somehow qualitatively different than every other member of Canadian society, that they are inherently either unable or too vulnerable to be able to, to make decisions about their own lives. Now, there's obviously a long tradition of that, uh, including from a legislative perspective in psychiatry. And I guess I would conclude by saying, you know, one of the other things that we did, of course, we had people with lived experience on our panel. We made an effort to go out and try to get a sense of what was being discussed in communities of people with lived experience who are taking leadership roles and in different policy spheres. And I think the one thing that we heard, and I hear it again and again, is that, of course, people with lived experience don't want to have easy access to MAID and no access to resources, but they also don't want to be told you're too vulnerable to be able to make decisions for yourself. So let us just exclude you um, because obviously as a group of people, you're not able. And you know, this debate about vulnerability has been fascinating because one of the things that I hear over and over again is that when we try to draw lines around groups of people, whatever their vulnerability we think is, mental disorder or other, when individuals sort of say, oh, am I in the vulnerable group? No, thank you. I want to be in the other group. I think the complexity is escaping from a logic of group-based reasoning, right? We, we have these ideas about groups, and now we're going to take those ideas and apply them to every single individual in the group. I think that is the thing that is difficult and complicated to, to get us out as a society of that way of thinking. Well, thank you so much, Mona, for sharing both your expertise and thoughtful reflections that, uh, that you've had on this topic. We so appreciate both your time and your insight. Thank you so much, Marika. It was really a pleasure to be able to dive into some of these questions with you today. Terrific. And I should also thank the production support that we get from Lisbeth Vitoff-Nielsen, Kristen Leshko-Skerry, and the team at Dalhousie MedIT. We also thank Ben Caps for our theme music, and thank you for listening. Please feel free to contact Enshen through our website with any feedback you have, including ideas for future episodes. Until next time.